Um, so I'd like to begin with a, a poem, and it's a Buddhist poem. And it begins, <clears throat> Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness erased, eased, excuse me, were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think of them. What is inside me, what is outside me, when these thoughts end, compulsion stops. Repetition ceases. Freedom dawns. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. Buddhas speak of self and also teach not self. That's kind of a Buddhist poem. <laughs> it's not the lightest poem you've ever heard. Um, when they say compulsion stops, they're pointing at the way we can be driven, we can act out of something from the past, out of a sense of not being free. That when repetition ceases, then we cease to live in a habitual way. We start to live freshly, we start to live immediately, we start to live from the actuality of what's here rather than from the past or the history or the ideas or the beliefs. And then freedom dawns. Buddhas speak of self and also teach not self. This is from the Garjuna, from a book he wrote. I don't know, no, it's not accurate to say that. From a, from a teaching that was given to him by serpents who lived under the sea. That's that's how it that's what it said that Nagarjuna found these or was given these teachings of the Buddhas at some point when he met these these sea serpents or Nagas so he became Naga Naga Nagarjuna. So I don't know exactly who wrote them, but um, but I like the poem. And I'd like to speak about this central topic about self and not-self, self and not-self in Buddhism and in practice. And, you know, I realized I kind of wrote a little article in the newsletter, you know, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And it's the same topic. And I thought, well, maybe I should read the article and, um, to you. But it's, but it's interesting, I seem to have some juice for speaking about this or thinking about this right now. 
And so I thought maybe we'll just start by defining the idea of self. How do we understand self? What do, what do we usually think of as self? And as I like to do, I went to the dictionary and the thesaurus, and I'll begin with the thesaurus, because I think it really points us pretty immediately to how we think of our self, or a self, or being a self, or myself. And the thesaurus said self, ego, I, oneself, persona, identity, character, personality, psyche. These are all pretty close to the conventional way we think of ourself. You know, me, I, mine, uh, my identity, my personality, who I am. And then if we look a, just a little bit, to, to look at, let us be informed a little bit by psychological theory, um, because we live in a psychological age, and it seems to have a, a lot of import for us actually. It says the portion of the psyche experienced as self or I is called the ego. It is the part that remembers, evaluates, plans, functions and in other ways is responsive to and acts in the surrounding physical social world. And according to Freud, and this is a helpful little model, there's, there's really three parts to the sense of self. There's the uh, ego, or the I, he said, and then there's the id, or the it, would be even a more accurate translation from the German, the it, which is more the instinctual drives and the unconscious. And then there's the over-I, or the super-ego. So this is a tripartite understanding of the sense of self. There's the, the ego, and then hopefully, it's considered hopefully managing these instinctual and unconscious drives. And, um, and then you have the super-ego, which is basically the societal and familial uh, values and injunctions and beliefs and rules and regulations that helps keep the sense of self in place, the sense of I. Now, um, the, the, the triplet that I like to think about or the poem that I often talk about when I talk about self and not self is from Dogen. It's the one I wrote about in here, which is to study the Buddha way is to study the self. Begins to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And I think that's a very, very important understanding because we often have a conflictual relationship with our sense of self. And some people, very common actually, come to Buddhism with the idea that we're going to get rid of the sense of self, or we're going to get rid of the ego, or we're going to destroy the ego in some way, or blow it up, or do something to it. But Dogen makes it very clear in this very simple statement to study the Buddha way is to study the self, is to actually pay attention to our sense of self. And so in that way we don't need to get rid of the self. Also, you'll notice there's no judgment about the self. 
Dogen's not saying, you know, we're going to study the bad self, or we're going to study ourselves because we're bad, or the self is bad, or anything like that. It doesn't say anything. It just says we want to study the self. This is what we have. This is what's here. This whole, this constellation of body and heart and mind that makes up our sense of self, ultimately. And we want to study it. We want to learn about it. We want to examine it. We want to investigate it. We want to inquire into it. We want to sit with it. We want to see what's true here and what's, and what's the deepest truth that's here. And it's tricky because we often have some negative feelings about ourselves. Anybody notice that? <laughs> okay, good. Um, and, and we can have both positive and negative feelings about ourselves. And we can also have both parts of ourselves which are more mature and less mature. More developed and less developed. And so, again, we want to look at what's our basis, what's our ground for practice, which is we don't necessarily, we may want to evaluate, we want to be able to see oh, what's mature, what's not mature, what needs some more development, or where, where do we need to um, uh, shine the self, we could say, or where does the self need to be um, helped in some way. Um, it, and it's why therapy is so important, because there's so many conflictual feelings around self and there are parts of ourselves that are not so well developed. But you don't have to get rid of yourself. You don't have to get rid of yourself. You don't have to, you know, sometimes I'll see people practicing and they'll say, oh, that's, that's myself. I'm not going to, you know, that's a bad, as if that's a bad thing. Or that's my ego. I mean, you definitely don't want to get rid of your ego. Remember, your ego functions in a certain way that's actually quite helpful, right? It remembers and it can do things and plans and it's, it, it's a, it's, it has a certain agency that's functional for a human being. You know, it's nice to remember to go home to the house that's your house, right? It's not, you know, when you, know, you get rid of the ego, that, you might not be able to do that. Now, to limit ourselves to ego functions might not also be true, might not also be um, uh, the truth of who and what we are. So we don't have to get rid of ourselves, but we can utilize the sense of self skillfully as part of the path to freedom, first of all, by studying it. And to study um, is to begin to discern or understand or see clearly what's self and then, of course, what's not self. And so Dogen continues, he says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. Right, beautiful Zen poem, right? It totally pulls the rug out immediately. To study the way is to study the self, and to study the self is to forget the self. Or to begin to relax 
around our sense of self or sense of self-involvement in some way. And now we're, we're being pointed at a, a, something important about this study is that we're not only studying self, we're studying what's not self or what happens as the usual way we're constellated begins to um, have a sense of ease to it or isn't so reified or rigidified or solidified or, or solid in some way. What happens when that uh, habitual, remember how I, I, I was talking about how um, the repetition that Nagarjuna pointed to um, that needs to go before freedom arises, when that starts to relax, that repetition and that fixation of self starts to ease, then what's here? What happens when we forget the self? And so the other um, question or the other um, uh, perspective to begin to examine the question of self and not-self has to do with what leads to our long-term happiness and benefit? What leads to our long-term happiness and benefit? And this is a fundamental Buddhist question. What, what provides us, what, what's the happiness we seek? What's the well-being we seek? What leads to it and what doesn't? And from this, this gives us a basis to evaluate or discern what parts of ourself are helpful and what aren't so helpful, what are skillful and what's not so skillful. What's mature and supports our realizing our goal of long-term happiness and well-being and what parts of ourselves don't support that. Because some parts are very helpful and some parts are. And one of the, one of the mature capacities that we have is one that goes against the grain of our society or against the stream as the Buddha would say of our, the movement of our society and, and the need for gratification which is the capacity to delay gratification in the service of a greater goal. And so part of Dharma practice is to arouse that part of us that sees that there's a long-term goal, there's a goal for our happiness and our well-being in the long term, and at times be willing to delay more immediate gratification in the service of that goal. And that's the function of a mature sense of self. It's generally a capacity that develops over time for people by experimenting with trying to get the gratification we want immediately and seeing what happens. Seeing whether that really works for our long-term happiness or not. And so people often go through a certain phase or a number of years or half a life or of you know, trying to get the right, the best chocolate or sex or drugs or whatever it might be to give a certain short-term happiness. And there is, there's some short-term happiness with all of those. Shopping, you know, whatever it might be. 
you know, there's a certain, and, and it's not a bad, you know, depending on what it is and what you're doing, but I mean, it's not horrible to get short-term happiness. It's, it's okay for the short term. But if we're keeping, if we actually have a vision, if we have an intuition of what's possible, that there's a that there's a freedom that's possible that's more than just getting an immediate gratification, then at times it'll be very skillful to delay our gratification in terms of our long-term goal. And that is a certain function of a mature sense of self. Here's, this is, I'm, I'm a little bit playing off of one of my teachers, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, and he said it this way. He said, wisdom, he's quoting the Buddha now, wisdom, the Buddha says, starts with a simple question. What actions will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? The wisdom here lies in realizing that your happiness depends on what you do. That your happiness depends on what you do and that the pursuit of happiness is worthwhile especially if it's long-term. That it's a legitimate, it's a very natural human desire to be happy and to seek happiness. But he's suggesting here, really look closely and then go for your long-term happiness and well-being. He continues, um, the test of how far your wisdom has matured lies in the strategic skill with which you can keep yourself from doing things you like to do but that would cause long-term harm and can talk yourselves into doing things you don't like to do but would lead to long-term well-being and happiness. I'm not totally down with all of that, I have to admit. <laughs> but the basic idea, when you really, when one really clarifies one's intention, or we could say what, when one really clarifies when what, what one loves, whether it's freedom, or liberation, or wholeness, or whatever, whatever language you might use, when you really see your deepest intention, your deepest love, the love that really encompasses all love, it's not so hard to delay certain gratifications or do some things that maybe you don't want to do in the moment, but you see will actually lead to your long-term happiness and well-being. So, um, one way I was thinking about this and is to see the benefits along the way are very helpful. That if we see that we have this long-term goal, let's call it nirvana. How's that? Nirvana is a really nice goal. One of my favorite goals. That there are three parts or three, three um, blisses that lead to that goal. And this is the bliss of blamelessness, the bliss of samadhi, and the bliss of relinquishment. And these three blisses, so somebody was using this, one of the teachers was using this phrase on the retreat, just among the teachers, the, 
the, the threefold bliss of blamelessness, of samadhi, and of relinquishment. And what it's describing is the bliss of blamelessness, which is um, the bliss of living a life where there's no recrimination. The bliss of living a life where there's not remorse. Or the bliss of living a life where you don't have to re- we don't have to rethink what we've done because we're not a, uh, we see that our ha- our long-term happiness and well-being is also dependent on other people's long-term happiness and well-being but they actually can't totally be separated and so there's a way that we're willing to participate in life with other beings that's responsible that is with integrity that is with the word really in Buddhism is living a virtuous life virtuous life and it means that we're going to act with integrity we're going to act with honesty we're going to act with generosity that we act with a sense of um, interconnectedness that we just and, and you know on one hand this is looking from the from the um, from the basket of virtue or of sila in Buddhism. But it's also, it's also seen with right view. It's seen with wisdom. It's all, it also is imbued with wisdom because we see how um, unseparate we are, how connected we are. Even connected is too mechanical a word. And it's really one fabric here. It's one fabric of life expressing itself. And then the wish, and that our wish for happiness is the wish for our life to be happy. It just can't, you can't actually separate. You might do that for a while at first, but at some point that, that loses its boundary. And it's just clear that we're all here together. We're all doing this together. And that it's an amazing, mysterious unfoldment of consciousness in this form, in this human form. And so the bliss of blamelessness, of harmlessness sometimes it's called, of not creating harm in the world. And by that I don't mean walking on eggshells. I want to be careful here. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about waking up and being able to respond to the moment with all of our capacity, with all of our quality, with all of our self. At, to respond with the maturest sense of self, which is, of course, um, um, indiscriminate from not-self, ultimately. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all beings. To forget the self is to awaken with everything. And so it's that, and, and I want to just say a little more about the eggshell part because sometimes people think, you know, if they're not going to create any harm, then nobody will ever, they can't ever upset anybody or something like that. It gets a little, it, 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 get, it becomes an idea rather than a living reality of being in the moment and actually responding to the moment with our love, our compassion, our creativity, our intelligence, our full presence and all the capacities that we can liberate to function in a mature way. And then the second is the bliss of samadhi. 
Samadhi is most accurately translated as the unification of, of uh, heart and mind, body. The unification of mind. That there's a composure, there's a collectedness that's possible. And Samadhi points to the meditative process itself. It points to the capacity. And this is, I'm going to piggyback on what uh, Tanisara Bhikkhu said. He said, um, he said, wisdom here lies in realizing that your happiness depends on what you do. He's talking about the law of karma, of action, that we have input. And one of the places, actually, we have a lot of input is in the meditative process. We, we, just to choose to sit down, instead of go get an ice cream, which, okay, I'll get the ice cream later, but I'm going to sit for a half hour first. So you're delaying your gratification in the service of a higher happiness than just having the ice cream and then and then within that process there's the capacity to learn how to nourish ourselves in a real way in a way that causes no harm to anybody in a way that is not dependent on getting things or having things or keeping things that we can begin to nourish ourselves um, or, or maybe a better way to say it is we begin to discover the way to allow self-nourishment to be realized. To realize the richness of our being and the, the substance of our being and the, uh, um, um, uh, I don't know the right word, the vitamin of our being, I want to say, and it's not a great line, but the... the um, we, we begin to find um, a capacity, a, a practice, and as we get skillful at it, that provides more and more nourishment, more and more um, um, uh, self-happiness. Self-happiness, just the happiness to be. Just the happiness to be here, to breathe, and to feel the breath. And, you know, I was encouraging you today to feel the body and the body breathing. What's alive here? And, and as we bring body and mind together, there's something very pleasurable in that. And I don't mean that meditation is always pleasurable. But as we quiet, as we collect, as we're more composed, as we concentrate, as we center, we're, we're beginning to find our home right here. We're beginning to find home where we sit. And there's something very satisfying about that. And this is the bliss of samadhi. And it can be not only satisfying, very pleasurable at a certain level of composure. Pleasurable, rapturous, joyful, equanimous. Beautiful, really. It's a beautiful state of mind when samadhi is realized. And then the bliss of relinquishment, which really goes hand in hand with samadhi, which is the, the bliss or the happiness or the joy of letting go or letting be or not having to hold on to things, not having to try to fix what can't be fixed. And by fixed, I mean fixated. Not trying to make solid what is not solid. And so with letting go comes harmony, alignment, non-clinging, and wisdom. 
And these three blisses, the bliss of blamelessness, the bliss of samadhi or collectedness or composure, the bliss of letting go of non-clinging, of relinquishment, they really interact. They all have an impact on one another. Each supports the other. They're not totally separate. And they all help develop a mature sense of self. A sense of self that is responsible, a sense of self that can be self-caring, self-nourishing, a sense of self that sees the way things are, that discerns or understands the way things are and begins to live in alignment with that truth. Begins to become, maybe even more than uh, um, sees things are, begins to become an expression of that truth. But the very way we are begins to express these three blisses. And, and then the question of not-self comes up. What does that mean from this view, from this understanding? It's the same context. What leads to our long-term happiness and well-being? What leads to our long-term happiness and well-being? At a certain point, the idea of self becomes limiting. Even to use the idea of mature self is somewhat limiting. And so at a certain point, the Buddha would teach people to start to pay attention to that. Actually, I'm going to back up. There's one other way to think about it, which is that there are parts of ourself that are not so mature or not so skillful or not so helpful. And we want to learn how to let go or not identify so strongly with those parts so that they're not self. But here's how the Buddha would speak to it. And this is from the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings of the Buddha. How do you construe this, monks, nuns, practitioners? If a person were to gather or burn or do as he or she likes with the grasses, twigs, branches, and leaves here in Jetta's grove, would the thought occur to you, it is us that this person is gathering, burning, or doing with as he or she likes? No, sir. Why is that? because these things are not ourself and do not pertain to ourself. Even so, practitioners, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. And then he gives a certain teaching to pay attention to. What to pay attention to? He says, what is not yours? Form is not yours. Form, meaning body, is not yours. Um, perception is not yours. Mental processes, thought, is not yours. Consciousness is not yours. Let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. So again, he's saying, let go of the sense of self now for the same reason before he said cultivate a certain sense of self, cultivate certain capacities. It's always for the same benefit, long-term happiness and well-being. 
And again, I'll, I'll, I'll quote from Tanisara Bhikkhu to keep talking about this. He says, for him, for the Buddha, self and not self aren't metaphysical principles. They're actions that can be mastered as skills. They're phenomena that can be mastered, can be utilized as skills. This is why he was able to use both concepts freely in his teaching. When the concept of self was conducive to skillful action, he would talk in terms of self not only on the level of generosity and virtue, but also on the level of meditation. As for the concept of not-self, the Buddha would advise using it, using it whenever unskillful attachment to things or patterns or behavior got in the way of your happiness. In effect, he would have you drop unhealthy and unskillful ways of self-identification in favor of ways that were more skilled and refined. Only at the highest level of practice, where even the most skillful concepts of self get in the way of the ultimate happiness, did the Buddha advocate totally abandoning them. But even then, he didn't advocate abandoning the basic principle of ego functioning. You drop the best happiness you can, that can come from a sense of self because an even greater happiness, nirvana, nirvana, timeless, totally timeless, limitless, and unconditioned appears when you do, when you drop it. So this is, a, this is, I think this is actually a very skillful way to think about self and not self, which is what brings long-term happiness and benefit and how to use what's here skillfully and what's not so skillful, how to let go of it how to release it, how to let itself liberate so that we can use the qualities that are helpful. And then we get to Dogen again. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to let go of the self or relax the sense of self. And in doing so, we awaken with all things, with the myriad things, he would say. And actually, there's a little more to the quote. I don't think I put it in the article. I, I rarely quote it, but I like to say it sometimes. I think I can remember it. <coughs> to study the Buddha ways, study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. To awaken with all things is to drop off body and mind and the body and minds of others. Okay, So it doesn't mean your body really drops. It's poetic here. You won't really drop off your body or your mind. But it means that the, the whole identification with body and mind lets go. It's one way we could think about it. And, and, and not only that, and the reification of others as body and mind and them. So the whole self and other dichotomy, duality, drops away. Right? So to study the Buddha way self, forget the self, waken with all things, to waken with all things is to drop off body and mind and the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. 
It's a little Zen kicker there at the end. (laughs) No trace of enlightenment remains. Because who's who's to be enlightened at that point? (laughs) And this no trace continues endlessly. So this is also sometimes talked about this no trace that continues endlessly is the fullness of emptiness the fullness of not self that there's something here that continues endlessly but there's no trace left because there's nothing reified there's nothing solid there's no it's like birds flying across the sky it's not like an airplane Airplane, they leave those trails now, you know. There's a whole conspiracy thing about those chemtrails, right? Some people know about that. Um, um, you know, they, but the birds leave no trail, right? Enlightenment need, leaves no trail. And this no trail continues endlessly. And there's a, a fullness to it. There's a beauty to it. There's this immediacy that we also begin to tap into at any moment when we're fully present, when we're here. There's an aliveness and freshness and immediacy. And so it's not so far away. It's not so far away. And I'll leave you with one more image. It's the image really of... Um, of um, um, to forget the self is to waken with all things, and it's I came across it in one of Jack Cornfield's old books, A Path with Heart. It said the Emperor of China asked a renowned Buddhist master if he would, if it would be possible to illustrate the nature of self in a visible way. So the nature of self in a visible way. In response, the master had a 16-sided room appointed with floor-to-ceiling mirrors that faced one another exactly. We've got an eight-sided room. Just add eight more sides, and it's totally mirrored, and the mirrors totally face one another. In the center, he hung a a candle that was lit. When the emperor entered the room, he could see the individual candle flame in thousands of forms, each of the mirrors extending it far into the distance. Okay, you got that image? Candle, middle of the room, all the mirrors. Then the master replaced the candle with a small crystal. The emperor could see the small crystal reflected again in every direction. When the master pointed closely at the crystal, the emperor could see the whole room of thousands of crystals reflected in each facet, in each tiny facet of the crystal in the center. The master showed how the tiniest particle contains the whole universe. True emptiness is not empty, but contains all things. That what's here, that includes the self, but may much more fundamentally be not-self, 
contains all things that we ourselves are an expression of the whole universe and one of the great beautiful translations of the four noble truths are, are oh, I have to remember it um, in this fathom long body you will find the world or sometimes translated the universe or sometimes translated as the cosmos so in this fathom long body you will find the cosmos the cause of the cosmos the end of the cosmos and the path that leads to that end and it's one of the ways the four noble truths is understood that the whole cosmos is sitting in your seat So let's sit for a minute before we end, please. True emptiness is not empty, but contains all things. The mysterious and pregnant void creates and reflects all possibilities. From it arises our individuality, which can be discovered and developed, although never possessed or fixed. The self is held in no self, in not self. May the merit of our practice here today, may the blessing, goodness, joy, may we share it gratefully, gracefully, gladly with all beings. May it be for the benefit of all. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of war and fear, of hatred, of division, from the suffering of racism and ignorance, confusion, greed. May all beings, all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together. May we awaken in every day, every way, every moment, realizing the truth of our true nature, our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.